two-thirds of North American birds are at increasing risk of extinction from global temperature rise. Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. second-year veterinary students at CSU. Sarah, what is our topic? We are looking at how climate change impacts birds and how we can study birds as a community to inform us about climate change. We can measure uh, how much glacial ice there is, how much ice is in the Arctic ice sheath. We can see these things as change and we can correlate that directly with the amount of human activity and the impact humans have had on our ecosystem to show that our environment is changing, whether we like it or not. And the aspect that we're looking at with this project is that we're, humans are changing the environment for animals as well. And so things like location, bird habitat, um, because we're eliminating habitat, we're looking at longer migration patterns that require more food, but at the same time, we're limiting food sources. And so we can directly study the impact that human activity is having on birds. Other factors like light pollution can affect the migration patterns of birds. So for example, Dallas is a city that almost all of the birds that migrate through North America travel through. Um, and the light pollution there has caused a lot of changes that have been tracked by the AeroEco Lab in migration pattern just because of human development and how large cities have gotten. Furthermore, because of global temperature rises, we see a change in seasons and food sources are available at different times of year. And so birds have adjusted the time of year at which they migrate to maximize the amount of food that they have access to. You may have noticed that you saw certain birds at certain times when you were growing up and that those times have changed, maybe moved earlier in the spring or you're seeing them earlier in the fall due to the changing temperatures. And this is all of course counting land birds. We could even go all the way into seabirds and look at ocean acidification and the impact that that is having as well on seabirds and their food access. Additionally, the use of single-use plastics and ocean pollution has caused problems not just for fish and marine environments, but also for the seabirds that use the ocean as their food source. Furthermore, research has shown that due to declining and changing food sources, the actual size of birds has decreased over the last 50 years so that birds have better survival rates. And so we see smaller birds as a result of climate change. And this is not just a problem in North America. Birds have migratory patterns all over the world and all over the world we have seen changes. I found like a pretty interesting article by the EPA that was published in 2016. And it talked about the changes in the climate in Colorado specifically. And one of the major things was wildfires. And they talked about the second largest wildfire in state history at that point was 5,000 acres. And we can look at what our state looks like right now with two fires that are over 100,000 acres. And just even within the last four years, the impact that that's having. And 
imagine the amount of habitat loss that we're going to realize after this is happening. Additionally, too, I was reading that this year there have been more bird die-offs than usual. And some theory is that because birds are having to migrate farther at one time because of the wildfires this year, that that's potentially causing more die-offs because they're running out of food. Sarah, is that happening just in Colorado or is that everywhere that there have been fires? Do you know? Um, understanding is it's mostly in the West that a lot of these die-offs have been in, like, they've seen them in, like, New Mexico and Arizona, I think to some degree in Colorado, but in places that are more densely populated, I think it's easier to see them. I think it's happening all up and down the West Coast because I've seen things about bird die-offs also in Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. Um, so it's definitely something that we can look into a little bit further. Community science can be defined as collaboratively led scientific investigation, exploration, and engagement in the entirety of the scientific process. Often, too, it can be used to describe projects in which scientists use data collected by community members to investigate their hypotheses. Previously, this was referred to as citizen science. However, the term has been changed to community science to be more inclusive and representative that someone's participation in science is not dependent on their citizenship. We were fortunate enough to be able to speak with Dr. Kyle Thornton of the CSU Arrow Ecology Lab about his lab's work and community science. My lab at CSU, Colorado State University, we try to think about airspace as habitat that organisms use. So this term aeroecology is, is maybe a little unfamiliar to maybe many, um, but ultimately what we're trying to do is think about the lower atmosphere as a critical habitat for the movement um, and the occupancy of organisms. So that includes things like birds, insects, and bats that transition uh, to and from wintering and breeding grounds. And the only way that they can do that successfully is to use that airspace. We also had the pleasure of interviewing Dave Trevino, who is a wildlife biologist for the National Park Service. He is the avian conservation lead for the National Park Service, as well as the coordinator in our area for the Audubon Climate Watch Program. How does community science benefit the larger scientific community? Regarding community science in terms of what it offers uh, to scientists is uh, really powerful. So if I want to know about migration at the scale of North America, I can't pay enough people to go out and collect data. Um, so it's, it's almost this um, you know, labor force that allows us to address questions that otherwise we just couldn't afford to do scientifically. And that comes with some pros and cons of community science data come in in maybe a haphazard way. There's biases of how the landscape is sampled. Um, bird watchers tend to like watching birds close to their home, uh, as you'd imagine. So there's biases in that regard, but we work around those things um, to provide data sets that otherwise just haven't been avail available to address scientific questions. So that's um, we always try to make that point of, you know, the data that those folks are collecting are really important. Um, and it, it sort of, you know, blossoms into this thing that, you know, if you get excited about it, you just tend to collect more and more data. Uh, and that's why we see in many community science platforms where there's a near exponential increase in data coming in every year um, as just, you know, your excitement permeates to, you know, your friends and family. Uh, and that spreads as well. And, and folks that otherwise just kept all of their observations in a notebook start now putting them into an online portal or using a mobile phone app to submit data. 
Um, so it just seems like it keeps growing and we keep learning more and advancing science. Um, and I think that's a really powerful part of community science uh, information as well. How would you recommend individuals get involved in community science? I think there's any uh, gradient here of, um, you know, you can be just starting out or you could be an expert bird watcher. And there are other platforms beyond just birds as well in terms of community science. Um, but I'll just speak towards the, the bird lens of things. So I would say anyone can contribute data and that's the fun of this. So if you're just starting out, um, you know, find a field guide that you feel comfortable with and start learning some of your, your backyard birds, for instance, maybe put up a bird feeder and see what comes to it. You know, start uh, identifying the common species. Um, you know, if you really get excited by that, you can start expanding uh, the footprint that you start bird watching into. Um, and I think some of the fun parts of this as well is that it, it can be, you know, just a fun group dynamic. Um, obviously, this is a little bit more challenging in terms of, you know, building community during a pandemic. Um, but the fun parts of bird watching too is that there's um, there's so many bird watchers wherever you go, basically in the world, you're likely to find community in that regard too. Um, and bird watchers love chatting about birds. Um, so it's it's a warm uh, environment, a welcoming environment. Um, and I think it can just be fun in terms of, you know, building, you know, friendships uh, beyond just learning about birds too. So the science angle is great and seeing the birds is phenomenal, but also building community can be quite exciting. The Audubon Society that is dedicated to the preservation and conservation of birds began their Community Science Climate Watch program in 2016, an effort to get community members involved in seeing what birds were in their community so that they could understand the impact of climate change on North American bird populations. In 2019, Survival by Degrees was published, which is the first very large community science publication of its kind. Audubon scientists actually used 140 million different observations, which were recorded by birders, volunteers, and scientists alike, to talk about where 604 North American bird species are living today. So we were able to map the ranges, and then they actually have a really awesome climate model on their website that shows how each species range is going to change um, based on different warming scenarios. So you can look at current adding 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2 degrees Celsius, or 3 degrees Celsius to different seasons, and it'll show you how the ranges change. So it's a very cool way to look at an individual region and be able to see how your specific birds are changing, and really shows the magnitude of this community science project. Additionally, this information is validated and um, looked at again by the Cornell Ornithology Lab. So even though it's people who are not scientists who are going out and gathering this information, all of it is being synthesized and looked over by bird scientists so that all of the information that we get from these kinds of um, community projects is as accurate as it can be. And part of the way that they were able to gather information about so many different bird species is by focusing on 12 specific keystone bird species that are found all across North America. And what we know about these 12 species can be extrapolated to help us know more information about the general health um, of both these species and other bird species in North America. And by having coordinators in different regions throughout the country, volunteers are able to submit data all across the United States 
um, especially because they've made it really accessible with different apps that you can use to submit your findings. Um, so you really don't have to have any equipment in order to go out and bird and collect information for the National Audubon Society. They actually have their own app that is just dedicated to this project called eBird. And so that way people are able to make their checklists um, and their graphs accessible to Audubon directly and to the scientists. And so it really makes it just so easy to be involved. Additionally, being involved in this project doesn't involve a whole year-long commitment um, to birding. Most of their observations take place in two survey periods, um, the winter survey period, which is from January 15 to February 15 of most years, and then the spring-summer survey period, which is from May 15 to June 15 of every year. So you might be wondering why we are bothering to talk about specifically birds in relation to climate change. And I think it's important to remember that none of this exists in a vacuum. The intersection between people, animals, and the planet is so interconnected. We are studying climate change's effect on birds, but also birds can tell us a lot about what is happening with climate change. It's kind of very cyclical. Um, and none of these things are as separate as they sometimes seem, even though often with science, we try to separate things into little categories, but everything is so interconnected. So Dave, in your experience as a coordinator for this Audubon Climate Watch program, would you say that there's a lot of value in the data that these people are gathering? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially with birding. Um, Birders are a unique species of human. Um, and when anecdotally, when we first started like trying to promote citizen science, I got pushed back because it's not rigorous, right? right. You know, Ebert's not a it doesn't appear to be rigorous from this side of it, right? And so from a from a wildlife manager's point of view, you know, you just you just have random people out there birding and they can be putting, you know, anything in. And they don't know the behind the scenes rigor that Cornell has to kind of confirm the accuracy of that. And I think that in the past decade, there's been a tremendous acceptance of community science, particularly in, in the realm of birding. Um, most birders, in my opinion, most serious birders, in my opinion, know more about birds than most wildlife professionals. I think it's really incredible that the information that's gathered by the community can be used in order to help um, birds return to certain areas of that community. I think that's fantastic. So how would you recommend that people, you know, become involved in this? It almost seems kind of niche. If people are, are thinking about to kind of utilize community science, I would highly encourage it because, you know, it's a, it's a win-win situation, I think, for, for the organizations, the NGOs, and also the person doing the science, you know, I, 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 I do community science in my off time because, you know, I feel like I'm contributing and it kind of makes me feel good. 
So through this Climate Watch program, a lot of information is gathered. What do you guys use that information for? You don't have to, you know, go into wild, you know, hard-to-get places to contribute. You can do it in your backyard, and it has value. You know, especially in this time of COVID, you know, it started at the beginning of the pandemic when people were sheltering at home much, much more. And I did it myself where I would bird in my backyard every morning. And so it doesn't, you don't have to, you know, go up to Laurier State Park or Pingree Park to do this contribution. You can do it in your backyard. And that's the other nice thing about birding as a community science is it can be done anywhere. So one of the great things that we've learned through this podcast is that there are just so many ways to get involved in community science. And it's pretty cool because the next observation period for Climate Watch is coming up on January 15th. So we can get involved right now from January 15th to February 15th in the winter observational period. And yeah, I don't know about y'all, but I'm definitely going to be participating in looking for birds. But since I don't really know how to get started, I did some research and want to share it with all of you just so you can know how to bird. So one of the easiest ways is to go just type in Audubon Climate Watch, and they have a lot of great resources on their website. Um, The National Park Service, uh, Dave mentioned also that they have um, some videos on birding from their um, Park at Home series on YouTube that you can also check out. Yeah, the Audubon website has so many great resources for how to bird and also a directory of all of the coordinators. So if you decide you don't want to do the project on your own or want some guidance from your local coordinators, you can see all of their emails and get in touch with the coordinator in your area. I personally am super excited because nine of the 12 species that are looked at in the Climate Watch live in Colorado's front range. So I think we'll have a really awesome opportunity to get to see some of these really keystone bird species. I also want to point out, though, that if you're not super excited about birds or don't really think that that's your thing, there are so many ways to get involved in community science. And all you have to do is just look for the opportunities, because if you're interested in anything, there's probably a project where you could help and contribute. It seems like it's the next wave in getting scientific information. It's so exciting to make science so accessible to the regular person. Thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you learned something today. Yeah, have a great day, y'all. Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast.